All right, we're doing Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, to the end of chapter 5. And what I'm going to do, I'm actually going to read the verses during the sermon. So let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fun it is to play with friends, to learn names and people, to answer good questions, to enjoy, Lord, the time together. I pray, Lord, as we think about your word and we turn to consider its, its truth, that, Father, you change us. You help us to see how real death is, how real Jesus Christ is, that he is the only savior of the world. Father, thank you for every single person here. Would you help them? Would you encourage them? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in our series in Genesis so far, we've been learning about how God is good and how God made the world good. In fact, he made everything very good. He made the heavens and all that they contain, stars, moon, planets. He made the earth and all that it contains, people, animals, plants, mountains, seas, but sin ruined everything. In chapter 3, we learned how sin ruined our relationship with God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden, and they lost access to the most important person in the whole entire world, God. In chapter 4, we learned about how people's relationships were broken because of sin. Cain killed his brother, Abel, and was kicked out of being with his family. Today, we look at chapter 5, and we learned about how sin Ruined our lives by death. I mean, this is like really discouraging, right? Really depressing. Talk about all those bad, hard things about life. Why talk so much about sin? Why talk so much about hard things and depressing things? First is because that's what God's word is telling us. Everything he says is good and good for us. Secondly, it's because we need to be totally convinced that our biggest problem is sin. Your biggest problem is sin. My biggest problem is sin is sin. Ultimately, sin is why people die, why there's war and death. Sin is why our dreams get dashed and broken. Sin is why you fight with your family. Sin is why we get bullied and feel afraid. Sin is why we don't love God as he deserves. Sin is why life is hard, and sin is why we deserve to go to hell. You have to be convinced, totally convinced in your mind, that your biggest problem is not getting people to like you, is not getting your parents to do what you want, is not finally getting a smartphone, but your biggest problem is sin. Because when you see that, you actually see the truth. You'll see that your biggest need is one someone who can conquer sin, a savior from sin. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, if you look forward with me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first proclamation of what God calls good news, saying he's going to send a savior. He's promising sinners he's going to send a champion, a warrior to come and defeat the serpent, to crush the serpent's head. And he promises that this man would be the son of a woman. But then we wonder, right? Well, which son is it? Which child is it? Is it Cain? Not Cain, because he murdered someone, he's bad. All right, what about Abel? No, not Abel, because he's, he's dead. Okay, so where's the Savior, right? Where's the Savior? Uh, when I was a kid, 
my friend did something really nice for his sister's birthday. Um, he set up a scavenger hunt. And the way it worked is, it starts like this. You get one clue, and you gotta go to the next, the next place wherever that clue leads, and you find another clue, and you just keep bouncing all the way around, right? So he, I don't know, the first clue was something like, uh, what's your most precious memory? And maybe she thinks, oh, like, you know, I have this picture when I was in a 10-year-old, and it's a birthday party, and I really, really loved it. So she goes to her picture frame near her bed, and on the back of the picture frame is a piece of paper with another clue. So he sets up this scavenger hunt for her, and he eventually sends her around the whole city until she finally comes back to her dining room at home, her dining room table. Underneath the table is this really beautiful necklace that he bought for her. Okay, so a scavenger hunt. Today, we're going to go on a scavenger hunt for the Savior. We're going to go on a scavenger hunt for the Savior, and our first starting clue is actually three clues. Our starting clues are, number one, the Savior has to be a human because he's the son of a woman. Second, the Savior has to be male because it says he will bruise the serpent's head. Third, the Savior has to be an enemy of Satan because he'll crush the serpent's head. That means he's going to be good, a good person. So, let's go on a scavenger hunt. Our first stop, the line of Cain. Looking for the Savior in the line of Cain. Would the Savior come from Cain's family? Look Look at chapter 4, verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have their livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So when Cain sinned, murdered Abel, he was kicked out of his family and was sent east of Eden. In the Bible, going east is usually associated with going away from the presence of God. It's not a good thing. Now, to leave God's presence doesn't mean you go where God is not. God is everywhere. God sees all things at all times. You can't run away from God, per se. But to leave his presence means that you're separating yourself from his blessing. It means you have gone away. You have abandoned the Lord. You have no more fountain of joy and encouragement of blessing. To go east away from God's presence is 100% not good. So Cain leaves God's presence. But if you look at chapter 4, it's clear that God is still really kind to Cain. He gives him a family. He doesn't get murdered, just like God promised. He has a son. He even has built a city after his son. He probably got to see his grandchildren, maybe even his great-great-grandchildren. Did Cain deserve all these blessings? No. He was a murderer, the first murderer. And yet God deals kindly with this sinner. This is what we call grace. Grace is God giving to sinners blessing and goodness when they don't deserve it. So God gave Cain's descendants families, homes, music, culture, technology, wealth, prosperity. This is how God always deals with sinners, better than they deserve. 
God's still the same today, you know? He still treats sinners like us way better than we deserve. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that your father in heaven makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Meaning God causes his son to rise upon people that don't deserve the sun and gives them rain to grow crops and have food that don't deserve the food. Think of all the good things in your life. Tonight, you all have a warm place to sleep, to call home. You probably ate three meals today, plus snacks. You have friends to play with, to laugh with, that like you. Your teachers at school actually care about you. Your parents love you more than they could ever, ever put into words. Your leaders are here and they want to care for you and pray for you. You don't deserve those kind of things. Just like I don't deserve those kind of things. We're sinners. Sinners only deserve punishment. But God treats us better than we deserve. God is so kind to give good gifts to us, sinners. It's not because we're good. It's because he is good. Now, God's grace does not mean that God does not care about sin. God hates sin. God is serious about sin. But his grace does mean that he's free to love even sinners. Because that's who God is. He's good. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 4. Cain had a descendant named Lamech, right? And this man was the worst. He was the culmination, the pinnacle, the peak, the best of Cain's family. What did he do? He broke the pattern of marriage by marrying two women, not one, which is evil in God's eyes. And he even boasted about murdering a young boy. And he even went so far to twist God's protection of Cain and make it about himself. He says, well, if Cain got protected after he murdered, I should be protected too. It's kind of like if um, you went to your mom, right? It's like, well, I pushed my sister and you didn't punish me. So now if I punch her, you still can't punish me. That's ridiculous, right? It takes advantage of God's grace, which should never, ever be done. So what do you think? Are we working for the Savior? Lamech is the best of Cain's family. Is Lamech the Savior of the world? No, absolutely not, right? He can't be. He's wicked. He's not good. So let's look for the Savior somewhere else. Looking for the Savior in the line of Seth. Look at chapter 4, verse 25. Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Seth is born after Abel is murdered. And we think, he's the replacement. Maybe he's the righteous one. Right? And look at the beginning of the middle of verse 26. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It's a glimmer of hope. It's a glimmer of light in the darkness. Even though sin had ruined man's relationship with God, even though sin had ruined our relationship with one another, even though sin had ruined Cain's family, Seth's family begins to call upon God's name. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean they're all walking around saying, God, 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 all the time? No, right? That's silly. What does it mean? In your Bibles, it should have Lord, spelled L-O-R-D. But you notice, it's usually capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Who has a translation that has like that? It's like big letters. Okay, cool. So capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Bible translators do that typically to signify when it means Yahweh, 
when it means Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant relational name. Who's heard the name Yahweh before? Okay, so a lot of you guys. So yeah, that's what the Bible means. When it has capital L-O-R-D, it means Yahweh. So it's not just the name of God. It's the name, it's not just the name of the Lord, but it's actually the name of Yahweh. That's really special because it embodies all that God is, all of God's promises, his person, his character, his reputation. And to call upon the name of Yahweh means to worship him. It means to see all of his goodness and his glory and say, you are God, I submit to you. I follow you. To put it in our, our language, someone who calls upon the name of the Lord is a believer. Someone who calls on the name of the Lord is a believer. So Seth and his sons begin to call upon the name of Yahweh. They become Yahweh worshipers. That's, that's really good, right? So we start asking ourselves, okay, okay, okay. Is the Savior going to come from Seth's family? Maybe. Let's see what his family's like. Look at chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. He named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh eight seven years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years after other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 105 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared ancient 30 years and he had other sons and daughters, and all the days of Mahalalel were ancient 95 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Jared were 162 years, and he died. When Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. So what's this chapter doing? The writer of Genesis, Moses, he's walking us along the scavenger hunt, looking for the Savior. Or to change metaphors a little bit, he's bringing us on an Easter egg hunt, opening each Easter egg, looking for the special prize and saying, is this the egg? Is this the egg? So come to the Seth egg. Pop the Seth egg open. Nope, nothing. Okay, what about the Enosh egg? Pop the Enosh egg open. Nope, nothing. So we just keep going, right? Generation after generation. Is this the Savior? No. Is this the Savior? No. How do we know it's not the Savior? Because they all died. Nine times over and over again. And he died, right? The chapter says it like this. Those all the days of Mr. So-and-so or blah, blah years. And he died. He died, he died, he died, he died, he died, he died, right? Why is Seth not the Savior? Because he's dead. Why is Enosh not the Savior? Because he's dead. You can't save anyone if you're still in the grave. Why is there death? Why is there death at all in the world? Genesis 2:17 says this. In the day that you eat of it, eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Genesis 5 is one of the saddest chapters in Genesis. God created man to live forever in perfect harmony with him, in love and peace and joy. 
But now that man dies, not just from murder, not just from cancer, from old, from old age, from car accidents, but he dies simply because he lives. We were not made to die, and yet we die because of sin. Ecclesiastes says that all of us are like dust. Excuse me, all of us are from the dust, and to dust all return. Meaning in 200 years from now, you know what we'll all be if Jesus doesn't come back? Dust in the ground, the stuff that worms eat. Nothing. Ecclesiastes continues chapter 9. He says that man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. From dust we are made, to dust we will return. And we will all die in a moment that we do not expect, maybe from disease, maybe from accidents, definitely from something unforeseen. You will die. I will die. Some people have said to me, oh, death is natural, right? Death is just part of life. It's, you know, it just happens. We should just accept it. But nothing could be further from the truth. We were not made to die. God made us to live forever, right? If you were to paint a masterpiece, like the best painting in the whole wide world, you wouldn't just light it on fire and burn it to ashes. If you, you wouldn't become the best picture in the whole wide world just to throw it all away by, I don't know, breaking your arms and never healing them again. You wouldn't build a family that you love just to tear it down to pieces. But God created man as his greatest creation. Yet we die. We end in death. We were made for eternity. But death ruins everything. We're sinners. Therefore, will die. So what will you do when your day comes? It will come earlier than you expect. Do not assume it will be when you're an old grandma. Ecclesiastes 9 says that suddenly death falls upon the children of men. If you died today, would you be ready to meet your maker in heaven? Or worse, in hell? That, asks, that begs the question, who will save us from death? Who will save us from death? but there's hope in verse 24. Luke chapter five, verse 24. It says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So amidst the drumbeat of, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, we have this flash of hope. Enoch didn't die. It says he lived, he walked with God, and then he was not, because God took him. What does that even mean? Hebrews 11 talks about Enoch and it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So Enoch escaped death. Why? Because God took him. In Genesis 5.24, it says that he walked with God. That means he, it doesn't mean like they took walks in the garden at night. It means that he habitually, continually, over and over again, lived as God wanted him to live. He lived in a relationship as one who loved God. For 365 years, all the days of his life, he was living for God, worshiping God, pleasing God, and then he was gone. Remember, working for a savior. Is it Enoch? No, because he's not here anymore. But then we gotta think a little bit. Who saved Enoch from death? God did. God did. 
That means even though death is oppressive, it's tyrannical, it's menace, you cannot run away from it, it comes for all of us, God is stronger than death. That means God is the savior. So if we were to add clue number four to our list of clues about who the savior is, we would say the savior must be God because only God is stronger than death. But then do you remember clue number one? The savior has to be a human. He has to be born of woman. Okay, so the Savior has to be a human, which means he's not God, but then the Savior has to be God because only God is stronger than death. Hmm. We'll come back to that. Put it on the shelf, right? Savior has to be both God and man. Let's move on. Look at verse 25. When Methuselah, that's Enoch's son, had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech, not the same Lamech of chapter four, different Lamech, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he named his son Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Lamech were 770 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, of course, we know who Noah is, right? He's the guy who built that big boat and he was saved from the flood. We'll learn a lot more about him in chapters six through nine, but for today, we have to ask, is Noah the savior? That's what his dad thought, right? His dad, Lamech, said, this one, this son, will bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. He's gonna save us, this kid. I mean, your parents put a lot of pressure on you in like school and sports and life, but imagine being Noah, his dad's like, you're the savior of the world, man. You. I couldn't handle that. And that's what Noah lived with. But is Noah the savior? The Bible says he was righteous, that he obeyed God. He was a preacher of righteousness. His family and he were saved from the flood. But after the flood, did people stop sinning? After the flood, did people stop dying? No. So in a sense, Noah is a small s savior, but he's not the true savior. Where does it leave us? We looked in all of our eggs. We found them all empty. There's no savior in sight. Our scavenger hunt is still not over. The scavenger hunt starts in Genesis, but actually continues all the way through the Old Testament until it finally brings us to Bethlehem, to a manger. That's where an animal gets its food from where the Son of God became a baby to become the chosen Savior of the world. Luke chapter 2, verse 11, in your notes, it says, For unto you, for for you, is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ is called a Savior. That's a big warning flashing hint, right? But look a little closer with this. Jesus is born. That means he's human. He fulfills clue number one of Genesis 3.15. He's also male. It fits clue number two of Genesis 3.15. We also know he's good. His life, he lived perfectly. He loved, he served, he, he laid down his life. So he fits clue number three. And notice he's called Christ the Lord. Or Christ, he who is Yahweh. So Jesus fits clue number four that he is also God. We opened the last Easter given to us by God, and we found him. Jesus is the savior of the world. He's God 
and man. He's the only one who's strong enough to defeat death. But how did he do that? He defeated death by dying. He defeated death by dying. Hebrews chapter 2 says that because we humans are under the curse of death, Jesus also became man to save those who are under the curse. He died the death that you and I deserve. And by his death, he defeated the devil, he defeated our sin, and he set us free. So we don't have to be afraid of dying anymore. Christ is our Savior who saves us even from death. He's the promised Savior who came to save his people from their sin. He's the conquering champion, the mighty warrior, who by his death crushed the serpent's head. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I know many of you who, especially who grew up in this church, when you chose the ministry, you all know this, right? Okay, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. But I want to know, not just is this, okay, do you think he's the Savior? But I want to know, is he your Savior? Is the one who's actually saved you? Becoming a Christian is not complicated at all. It just means you have to have a true saving faith. And a true saving faith, I would break down into three parts, or three, three things that need to be uh, woven together. This is what true saving faith is. You know, you rejoice in, and you trust in Christ. First, you know. You know and understand the truth that I've just told you, that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose as our Savior. You know that he's your God and your creator who made you, that you deserve eternal death for your sins, and that because he lived, died, and resurrected from the dead, you can be free of all the punishment that you deserve for your sins. You know that. That's the first part of faith. The second part of faith is you rejoice in that, meaning you say, yeah, I agree with that. That is true. I want that. You rejoice that Jesus is the Savior that you need. It means that not only do you know about the gospel, but that you love the gospel and you gladly embrace all that Jesus is for you. Second part of faith is you rejoice. So you know, you rejoice, and the third part is you trust. You trust and rely upon Jesus Christ alone as your hope of salvation. That means it's not just, okay, Jesus is the Savior, but Jesus is my Savior. You're not saved because you believe and you do good things. You're not saved because you believe and you read the Bible and you go to church and, I don't know, you love your parents. Being a Christian means you believe and that's it. You have faith that Christ alone is strong enough to defeat your sin, to die for your sin, and rise for your salvation. All faith is, in a sense, is receiving what God has already done. That's the gospel. I know you know it, but do you rejoice in it? Do you trust in Christ alone? See, for all of human history, the Old Testament saints were looking for a solution to their biggest problem, sin. But today we know his name. The scavenger hunt hunt is over. Jesus Christ is the one stronger than death, the perfect sacrifice for sin, the long-awaited Savior. If you would just believe in him, if you just trust him, you'll be saved. Pray with me. Father, the search is over. You brought him. Through thousands of years of history, you brought him so that we know his name. We know what he's like. He's good and strong and perfect 
and wise and beautiful, our joy, our wisdom, our love. He's Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, for every single person here, that we would see him for who he really is, that we would love him because he has loved us first, and that we would trust everything about our lives, our past, our present, our future, our eternities, into his hands, that you would save us all. May your will be done, Lord. May Christ be honored. It's in his perfect name we pray. Amen.